Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. In this episode, I conclude my discussion with Tom Slay. We resume our conversation with Tom responding to my invitation to comment about the tradition of the American long poem, and to do so from the point of view of a well-respected practitioner of the form. And in particular, I asked Tom to provide a response that utilized two of his own long poems, ending from his long-awaited second collection, Waking, appearing as it did seven years after his debut, After One, and the more recent Homage to Basho from 2015's Station Z. Well, the, um, you know, ending is a sort of interesting anomaly uh, for me. Uh, I think one of the reasons why there were so many years between books is because of what I mentioned before, uh, having this illness. And, um, you know, I was extremely sick and did not think I would make it. Um, and then when I began to write ending, um, the thing that was curious about it was that here I was writing ending about someone with a potentially fatal blood disease. Um, And as I wrote it, I worked on it doggedly day after day. But the experience of writing it, it was extremely inchoate, partly because, you know, the ending literally (laughs) was unknown. That is, is the guy going to die? And that was the question that was in the poem. And that was the question that was in my life, in my mind at the same time. But all of that aside, I, you know, suddenly the poem began to um, come together after, you know, you know, draft after draft after draft of sections and pieces. And when I realized that the kind of prosodic pr- principle of the whole poem was a quatrain uh, that kept falling apart. And as soon as I realized that, then I, I found that there was an easier time uh writing that poem and and with you know the other poem you mentioned homage to basho um because you know that basho wrote that wonderful book uh, narrow road to the far north which is just basically a a travelogue punctuated with haiku which is you know traditional form is called the haibun i remember reading that and i thought yeah i can this gives me a shape that i can use i can go alternate back and forth between the travel part and then maybe some kind of poetic distillation. But even at a maybe a more more deeper level is it brought to mind uh, something that Seamus Heaney had once said. And when Heaney left um, Northern Ireland to move to the south, and this was, of course, during the middle of the Troubles, uh, you know, that kind of sectarian violence that went on uh, for something like 30 or 40 years, um, he was reviled by other Northern Irish poets. He was reviled by Northern Irish critics as a kind of sellout, a turncoat, 
a traitor, really. And what he, his response to that was so interesting to me. He wrote that he did not want to take any particular side, but he wanted to be responsive to all sides at once. And when I began to think about that comment and think about Amish de Bashot, you know, I did not want to have some kind of ideological statement that was going to wrap everything up in a neat, you know, bow with about our involvement in Iraq. And so it suddenly dawned on me that if you want to be responsive to all sides at once, that if you have many different ways of coming at the subject, different, different parts to a sequence, that you can keep the perspective shifting. And I think that was, in that sense, I guess that, you know, it, it's a long poem, maybe it's a collage, but what I'm hoping is that there's this kind of, uh, you know, uh, gravitational pull at the center of it. Right, uh, a pull that brings together a, a shifting of, of elements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a, a comment of yours in a talk that you gave about Heaney that I was able to watch on YouTube and getting ready well, for this this chat about this about Heaney's ability to write sonnets and you chose a sonnet in a sequence. Uh, the so- the sonnet is about folding laundry. Yeah. With his mother. Right. And. After a, a, a really uh, perceptive and brief uh, analysis of that poem, you, you end by saying that one of Heaney's great gifts to you and the other poets coming after him is to have redefined what the sonnet is and that the sonnet isn't about closure. It's about openness. Yeah. And I suppose I'm hearing a way in which your engagement with this uh, tradition among American poets going back to Leaves of Grass and the Bridge and the Wasteland is to engage in that in a different spirit, a spirit that sees the long poem not about sort of closing off as much as you can in your in your grasp, but about open opening that up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things. I, I mean, there's so much air. And by air, I mean, um, there's so much uh, energy that pours in between the parts of, say, Heaney's sequence about his mother's death. And, you know, it's a little bit like what um, Borges said that it would be much better rather than to write long novels in which everything was was uh, filled in that it would be a much better idea to write a summary of it and present that because the and, and the thing that's interesting to me is particularly in a writer like heaney who is a real master of writing sequences you know i mean that is really one of his great gifts because he's a brilliant short lyricist, nobody better, probably nobody better ever. Um, but at the same time, you know, he has this really uh, complicated, vexed relationship 
I think to any kind of uns- any kind of certainty, you know what Randall Gerald called the monumental certainties that go perpetually by, perpetually on time. And I think Seamus has a deep sort of skeptical nature or had a deep skeptical nature uh, at the same time as his Catholic, you know, of you know, what he called my Catholic subconscious. That is his desire that the resurrection and um, that the resurrection be realized in in secular uh, psychological terms. Having brought up Heaney, I wanted to mention that I listened to a New Yorker podcast that you did with Paul Muldoon. Right. And you uh, read one of Heaney's poems and then you read your own The Fox. And although I thought I knew quite a bit about you, I didn't know that you were and still are a committed surfer. And listening to you talk about that, I began to wonder if your experience surfing and i've i've only surfed once and that was at huntington beach oh um and i had a bet with with my wife gabriella that as to who would get up first you know and (laughs) and and there's nothing like a bet with your wife to, to to try to stir you to get up first and i did and i rode i rode a little bit um Although at that point, there's not really a wave, but it's still a kind of white foam forward motion. And I was able to do that, and I hope one day to do it again. But it's enough for me to ask the question that is your sense of what lyrically constitutes a poem, sort of the musicality of it, the rhythm of it, and the sort of duration of it influenced or impacted by your love of surfing? God, what a great question. Um, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are a lot of interesting things. I mean, when you're first off, I mean, hats off, dude, for standing up. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't get that far. They just get dumped and smacked around and, and they come out of the water and think, boy, what a downer that was. So it sounds like you had a pretty good time of it, um, which means that, you know, you can probably do it, should do it again. But, you know, I, th- I thought about, you know, in the poem you mentioned, uh, the, 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 um, the fox, is when I first came to California, I had been living um, in the sticks in Texas, you know. And I remember all my surfer, everybody whom I met, uh, they were all, you know, surfers, that's just the kind of, it was a, it was a super working class, uh, very tough, uh, high school, uh, full of Navy kids and, and, uh, you know, uh, Chicanos and very mixed high school, you know, uh, African-Americans. And, and then there was a segment of, of course, those kids who were surfers, a lot of them were. And, um, I remember they used to call me farmer uh, because I still, you know, I still had this kind of accent and, you know, and so they would call me farmer and uh, they would mock me and et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I could learn how to surf and maybe they won't mock me so much, et cetera, et cetera. So I went out there and this was just when a short birth, I mean, forgive me, I'm going to start sounding like a, like, 
One of the things I love about your our conversation before we began this was your whole gearhead, all of the gearhead stuff I love. I'm totally into any kind, anybody who has a certain kind of passion for a particular expertise, I love. That always moves me because I love the particularity of people's understanding of something which they love and their ability to talk about it and communicate that even though it may not be something that I ever do. I've never boxed, but, you know, I love A.J. Liebling's book. I, I probably won't write a motorcycle again, but it, it, it all becomes totally, um, you know, physically embodied when I read your prose. But in any case, I think what happens for me in terms of 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 surfing is that there is a it's all about timing it's all about wave knowledge um it's all about knowing is this wave going to be closed out or is this wave actually going to break right or left and that's something that i think um that that stuff kind of imprints on your mind and it prints on your muscles uh eventually and so when I think when I'm sitting down to write a poem, if, um, you know, I, I've written a lot in a rhyme and meter, I've written a lot of free verse, um, and it is a kind of physical sensation when I'm writing a sentence, and that becomes the real adventure. When you begin at it for a long, long time, the adventure, I remember talking to Mark Strand about this uh, shortly before he died, and Mark was writing the poems in his last book, um, which were, you know, those little prose poems. Um, and and he was talking, we were talking about, you know, how you keep your work going. And he said, well, you know, for me, it's all about learning how to write different kinds of sentences. And I thought that was such an interesting, smart comment and articulated just precisely what I was up to at the same time, and the um, the 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 way in which surfing and muscle memory it's also very much a part of writing poems. It's not like writing poem. Everybody thinks it takes place in the head, but and it, to a certain extent it does. But when you're following a voice, it's very much very similar to understanding the contour of a wave and not getting in your own way. And I think that's that's one of the things that certainly surfing in a way may feed into may feed into writing poems, even though it's an, you know, kind of an aural wave you're writing as opposed to a, a water wave. Mm -hmm. Can I get you to read the title poem? Oh, sure. This poem is about uh, the speakers uh, having an MRI. Um, the King's Touch, after an MRI. Up through shifting blues, to where the sun is coolly ignorant of where I lie on the sea bottom, lit by my own stormlight flickering. I hear the text voice, wrapped in space dark, scuttling through black light. Please don't move. Mr. Slay. All around me, the room is stammering, iron smashing against iron. 
a robot drummer pounding out the Earth's magnetic field, slicing my brain into a geode's crystalline amethyst. Lying in my underwear, t-shirt, and holy socks, my head wedged to keep it still, I feel coming closer the king's hand. Poor, squeamish king, cursed by the power to cure, having to touch all us sufferers with our ugly, swollen glands. But why shouldn't the king's touch cure me? Caught like an astronaut against the ocean's curve lit by the sun rising, I can see the tech back on Earth reflected in the metal halo hovering above my skull. Spinning crazily as dials on an old dynamo, my body's beyond control, outside of me staring up at my own neuter attachments. In front of me, the whole Earth shines in its neural blaze, and the tumor in my brain goes on its own spacewalk, free to drift where gravity takes it. My tumor that, like a mother, talks to me in dreams, asking, Tom, do you have your suitcase? Did you remember your razor and your toothbrush? Have you packed your shoes? The question I have as a listener to the poem is that the ending is when you have the benefit of reading it in italics. When I read somebody like uh, Bedard, yeah, um, and I've had the privilege of listening to Bedard read a poem, or I've, I've seen him read several times, sure, uh, including at the at the LCLC when he read music like dirt. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe for the first time, and then he published it through Sarah Band. And whenever I read a Bedart poem and I see his shifts in typeface, yeah, I I hear the voice change in my head in conjunction with those shifts because I know what Bedart is signaling with them, right. So for our listeners, the the last lines are in italics. What are your own thoughts about how you make those decisions in your poetry? Well, one thing about Frank's work is that um, you know, Frank is very, very uh, deeply committed to the idea that what you're doing when you're putting a poem on the page is that you're any he, and he refers to an essay uh, by Robert Frost which is a very very wonderful essay it's only a few pages long and it seems like oh one of these you know throwaway things and it's actually brilliant it's actually probably one of the most important practical 
uh, documents that was ever written about how to write poems. And it's just called uh, Vocal Imagination, The Last Refinement of Subject Matter. And one thing that, you know, Frank is very intent on doing is he thinks that what you're doing when you're putting a poem on the page, that you're scoring your voice uh, for the reader on the page, and that it's not simply just scoring it like music. You're trying to embody your voice on the page. You're not gesturing at it. You know, uh, it's it's not about verbal gestures. It's, it's not about any of that stuff. But it is really embodying your voice on the page. And one of the ways you do that is by the particularity of the syntax, which, of course, you know, if if it's good syntax, you know, maps, uh, you know, the shifts of subtle shifts in mood consciousness of a particular speaker. Um, and so, you know, when I when I when I have a shift in voice in a poem, sometimes it's a it's a hard I have an interesting conversation in my head about certain moments. Like one of the things one of the things I really loved about Late Lowell, uh, particularly in a, a poem, a, a kind of poem that he'd written, you know, several times, and that is the experience of being in a mental institution. And in this particular poem, Home, which is a very late poem about being in a mental institution, uh, if you look back at, um, you know, Waking in the Blue, which is about being in McLean's, there's a speaker and the speaker's, you know, clearly in the grip of mania and kind of enjoying it, you know. But the poem is absolute. He, he's a he's an observer, so he's observing the various other thoroughbred mental cases around him. But there's this, but it, it's only from one very particular point of view. And then later on in that poem, it's suddenly the Lowell opens up and he becomes incredibly hospitable. He becomes a theater, in fact, of many different voices. And that's when he starts to use, um, you know, uh, italics to signal that this isn't necessarily the speaker's voice. This is a different kind of voice that's been allowed into the poem, but there's a certain kind of hospitality now that the poems offer to readers, which the earlier poems, great as they are, just didn't offer. And that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, Lowell's work is in a certain way, I mean, I think all of it's really marvelous and I'm not going to choose one period over another, but the work toward the end of his life is more humane, you know, uh, at least in in uh, day by day. And so for me, what it is, it's trying to signal a kind of shift in consciousness and a shift in voice and trying to, you know, just clue the reader in that, you know, you don't have to hear this poem uh, this particular section of the poem as being in the rest of the lyric speaker's voice. It's in a different kind of voice. And, you know, the the obvious, I mean, consequence of that is that, you know, it opens a poem up to many different forms of experience, which a lyric speaker is just not going to be able to, you know, uh, vouch for in any way that's real. I'd like to ask you to end our conversation by reading Clarence if sure uh, 
if I got to to assemble my uh, selected Tom Slay, I might slip clearance to the end of a section at least. Uh -huh. uh, I think it's a I think it's a good mic drop <coughs> poem. <laughs> you know, this poem came out of when my mother my mother's ninety seven now, and when she was um, I think she was ninety. Uh, I think she just turned 90 and she called me up one day and said that for her 90th birthday, uh, she wanted to go on a dog sled ride. <laughs> I just thought all I could think of was, oh my God, I'm going to have to take my mother to, right. you know, yeah, I did ride. I mean, it was just I, all I could all I could envision was, you know, me taking her home in a body bag because she'd stroked out because of. You know. <laughs> and so uh, but she said, well, that's what I want to do. And so, you know, she has a, a lovely, wonderful woman who takes care of her on occasion. And so Alice was game. And so he said, OK. I'll fly to Colorado and we'll go up to Snowmass and we'll take a dog sled ride. And so that's really where this poem started. And the the person who's anyway, the guys who were working as mushers, um, quite a few of them, I think three of them were ex-military guys who'd served in Iraq. And so I began to talk about, you know, my experiences in Iraq. And they began to talk about their experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, one of the guys said, you know, when I got back um, from the war, I, I, it was just, you know, fitting into daily life was just too complicated for me. And, and, you know, having been a sniper, you know, that was even more complicated. And he said, so now when I'm up here, I'm with the dogs. And I, I feel very at home, you know, with with the dogs. I, I think the, the whole, the way in which his experience in Afghanistan had changed him and made human beings in a way just too complicated to understand or to read, uh, that in a way working with the dogs was a great comfort to him. Clarence, for sale. Two tours of duty in Afghanistan of the sniper turned musher to mutts pulling a dog sled at snow mass. The animal in him touched by the essence of animal staining the snow yellow. His scopes hidden under his cot in the bunkhouse. For sale. Continent under continent, the ocean shelving down, the blood of a whale pouring out of the gate of a flatbed truck and pattering like soft rain on the tarmac. A chainsaw hacks through blubber, but stops short of the vertebrae set end to end like whiskey kegs. For sale, ghosts lining up like girders made of core tin steel, the air ionized by their ectoplasmic flesh so that the hair inside your nostrils turns electric 
when they pass. Scraps of voices, clanging resurrections, rusted hymns sung by deactivated RPGs, creaking hosannas of army surplus warehouses, bargain basement prices for the military slang of the second ass crack regiment, putting in for leave time at Fort Fumble. For sale, the otherworldly sergeant lifting weights like an old time strongman, a thick leather belt cinching his waist as if his strength or weakness could hardly be contained. For sale, yourself inside the blast wave, shattering the show window, its vacuum sucking all the suits into the street. Scorched linen sleeve of a 44 long, ready to wear for weddings, funerals, christenings. For sale. All voids, all empty spaces, all time torn off unused, between what people say are life's greatest events and the unnoticed quiet of water polishing stone, wearing ever smoother, each atom always moving. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Tom. I hope you've enjoyed my discussion with Tom Slay. If you did, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and hit like. And as always, I would ask you to consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult the louisvilleconference.com for details. And thanks again for listening.